You are listening to the Israel Connection on JA Community Radio in Melbourne, Australia, streaming live on the internet at j-air.com.au and on 88FM. My name is David Schulberg, bringing you another episode of this weekly radio program that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. Professor Ned Lazarus, who has been on the show before, is a specialist in conflict resolution. Today we will consider the impact of President Isaac Herzog's rapturous reception by the US Congress and the moves afoot for the US to introduce a visa waiver for Israelis with a quid pro quo for Palestinian Americans to come directly to Israel. I'm speaking with you today because you expressed an interest in speaking about the warm welcome that was extended by the White House to Israel's President Isaac Herzog, ostensibly celebrating 75 years of Israel's independence. Now, you indicated that the meeting was meant to serve as a steadfast reminder of friendship, dedication, and alliance between the countries. And from the rapturous applause that Herzog received in the joint meeting of the Congress, would you say that Israel's close relationship with the United States is as close as ever? And before I get you to respond to that, Ned, I'm going to just play a short passage from Herzog's 45-minute oration that exemplifies the close and important relationship between Israel and the United States. A new generation of Israelis and Americans are assuming leadership roles, a generation that was not privy to the hardship of Israel's formative years, a generation that is less engaged in the roots that connect our peoples, a generation that perhaps takes for granted the U.S.-Israel relationship. Yet, at this moment, I am optimistic, because to me it is clear that the shift in generations does not reflect changing values, nor does it indicate changes in our interests. When the United States is strong, Israel is stronger. And when Israel is strong, the United States is more secure. <clears throat> Today, my dear friends, we are provided the opportunity to reaffirm and redefine the future of our relationship. Each of us here has a decisive role in the future we are building. Many of the challenges Israel and the United States face are similar. We are all experiencing a tumultuous shift in balance, evident in countless areas. Geopolitical unrest, big power competition, catastrophic war in Ukraine, pandemics, climate crisis, the unknown of artificial intelligence, energy shortages, food insecurity, scarcity of water and desertification, global terror, social polarization, and the attempts to destabilize democracy. Each of these challenges present an opportunity to seek out solutions together, which will benefit the global community. Israel has the ability to contribute in a unique, significant fashion to addressing these challenges. Israel and the United States are world leaders in aiding countries whose peoples have suffered. Our collaborative capabilities, coupled with our mutual beneficial partnership, are the key to the future of our children. To us, it is clear 
that America is irreplaceable to Israel and Israel is irreplaceable to America. So having heard Herzog's little uh, excerpt there from uh, his speech, what do you say about the nature of the relationship, the way that he expresses himself in that section in particular? Herzog has done very well in uh, some of the phrasing there, acknowledgement of the enormous importance of this alliance with the United States for Israel, stating when the United States is strong, then Israel is uh, is stronger. He also makes it a two-way street, which of course, I think it is certainly important to say that supporting Israel is in American interests. Of course, this is not a symmetrical relationship when we're talking about the uh, size or global influence of these two countries. What you've just said, all of the affirmations and reaffirmations of the ironclad nature of this relationship, the deep friendship, the uh, shared values, etc. This is all what would be expected. This is the norm of official rhetoric around the relationship between the United States and Israel. Herzog touched lightly on some of the, the sources of questioning of what the future of that relationship will be. He did mention correctly that there's going to be a changing of the guard. It hasn't happened yet, but there will be a generational shift over the next decade. Joe Biden is in his 80s, as we know. Prime Minister Netanyahu in Israel is uh, in his 70s. Younger generations will gradually take power. It is a question. It's an open question of how that will impact the U.S.-Israel relationship, which, uh, as you said, has, in some senses, it's the, the the strength of that alliance, the solid nature of that alliance, demonstrated by the fact that there have been some serious rifts, some serious disagreements over policy, some vented publicly over the years that have never significantly affected the military aid to Israel, the support for Israel by the United States and the United Nations and other forums, obviously the Israeli support for U.S. foreign policy. And even currently, there are sources of disagreement. The current government, those are exacerbated, uh, the current Israeli government, over Israel's policy in the West Bank, over the expansion of settlements, also over what the United States, I think the United States would like to see a more enthusiastic Israeli support for Ukraine in its war against Russia, a more robust and clear statement. Israel, for given its own interests and fears, given Russia's uh, military presence in Syria and influence over the ability of Iran uh, and Hezbollah to operate in Syria, uh, Israel you know, remains hesitant to push too hard against Russia publicly. So there's there are sources of tension built in, but we can see that those, there have been other moments of uh, of, of even great tension. The relationship between President Obama and Prime Minister Netanyahu was not considered particularly friendly, and there were policy differences. Nonetheless, the basics of the alliance continued uninterrupted and undisturbed by even differences, whether of personality or of policy or of both at the same time among the leadership. All of those things remain true, and Herzog affirming them is appropriate and is also expected. What is different about this? A couple of things. One, there was a small group of Democratic lawmakers who did not attend the address. I think it came up to a total of 10 
I don't think that they represent, they clearly don't represent the dominant voice in the Democratic Party, but they, they represent the most sort of progressive, quote unquote, wing. Many of them are young. And so they may represent a shift in the Democratic Party that will leave more of an imprint over time. That is something to note. Uh, again, I don't think it has any significance. Certainly, it has no policy impact at this time, but it, it could be a harbinger of something that will have impact in the future. Something that I think is unfortunate is that some of these lawmakers disagree, uh, as I do, uh, with the policy of uh, expansion of settlements in the West Bank and avoidance of saying, at least even laying foundations for a future solution. But some of them don't differentiate between Herzog and the Israeli government. To me, that's a blindness. That's uh, and, and and actually, that's that's a failure that affirms to Israelis that it doesn't matter if you what your stance is uh, on Israeli politics. They are against you, carte blanche. And I think that's the, that's a, a a counterproductive message that those Democrats have sent. I certainly would oppose it. The much more important difference, uh, much more important, you know, what's new about this is the fact that Herzog was the one giving this speech on the occasion of Israel's 75th independence. Now, we know that Prime Minister Netanyahu enjoys a trip abroad. We know that he is a skilled rhetorician uh, and enjoys giving a good speech to an international audience. He has given speeches to joint sessions of Congress before. One can assume that he would be thrilled to be giving that speech right now at a moment when he is in a very difficult position politically. Uh, so not invited to do that. And so in some sense, a very large message was sent simply through the choice of Herzog as the speaker on behalf of Israel and recognized by Netanyahu in the fact that he didn't, if he did any grumbling about it, he kept it largely private. There, we can see that there's a significant gap. That being despite uh, there being uh, a, an avowedly pro-Israel president who knows Netanyahu personally, has a relationship with him, who does not want to change the fundamentals of the Al Kaplow, an excellent analyst, wrote that uh, Israelis should recognize, you know, jo Joe Biden may be the last enthusiastically pro-Israel democratic president in the United States. One cannot predict these things. Yeah, I, I certainly concur with you about what you've just been saying about Netanyahu not being the uh, the one who had the honor. Can you just reiterate, who was the journalist who you mentioned that uh, has made some remarks about whether Biden may be the last uh, Democrat who is so enthusiastic? What was his name? Michael Koplau. He's the policy director of the Israel Policy Forum, and he's an excellent analyst of uh, Israeli politics and also of the U.S. politics surrounding Israel. Okay, understood. At this House gathering, we didn't see uh, Biden present, but Biden met up with President Herzog at the White House, where they sat opposite each other and had uh, a short exchange. Now, I'm going to play a short uh, excerpt from that, which shows or indicates that um, Biden seemed to be sort of dropping his concentration, and some even suggested he might have been uh, falling asleep while he was talking to uh, Herzog. I'll play that. Could someone please decipher this for me? And we brought Israelis and Palestinians together at a political level, and, they, uh, and uh, at the, uh, 
and aqua and all the shrimp. And uh, as I uh, affirmed to Prime Minister Netanyahu yesterday. Having heard that, do you have any qualms about Biden's ability to steer the US on the international stage the way that he comes across in meetings like this? None whatsoever. With Biden, he had a stutter when he was younger and is prone to sometimes saying things in roundabout ways or in ways that you wouldn't expect. He is also obviously older uh, and he's up there in years, uh, same age as my parents. Nonetheless, and I've seen him speak publicly and sometimes seem a little more tired and rambling and then sometimes seem completely lucid at important moments, such as the presidential campaign or his State of the Union address, he's he's sharp. The main reason I d- I'm not I don't have qualms, certainly not in terms of judgment, is that he's he's done an excellent job as president. He's passed more meaningful legislation with Republican votes on important occasions as is necessary than most of his predecessors that I that, that I can recall. So he's he's proven, uh, I think, to be certainly and very much on the domestic end. He's also held up the, you know, I'd say one of the import, most important foreign policy issues, obviously, is the response to Russia and the war in Ukraine. And he's been very, very strong on that and consistent. One is absolutely free to disagree with his policies or his goals. Uh, but I think he's, you know, he's certainly been an effective uh, leader uh, and a coherent, you know, completely coherent in where he's going. Obviously, we have to have health concerns about what could happen down the road. That's true with Biden. That's true with his, certainly his most prominent opponent at this time. This is par for the course. But uh, in terms of his ability to uh, run the ship of state, uh, not a simple job. Uh, you know, I think he's been doing it. All right, let's leave judgment uh, aside. Other people obviously uh, feel as though he's not up to the job and uh, watching him uh, with his a piece of paper there in front of him, making sure that he uh, stayed on topic. Uh, one wonders um, how well he is informed. I think he's guided very strongly by by his minders uh, when he speaks. I remember in 1996, I was a young, young man meeting Shimon Perez, who at the time must have been in his, in his 70s. I was brought into his office. He was asleep. His head was down. He was, he, he was asleep. He woke up, took him about 15 seconds, and then he was on. He was lucid. He was an extraordinary person. He was doing a very difficult job at the time, but I think he had another 15 years, including being the president of Israel. In fact, even doing some of the work that Herzog does, you know, going to speak to international forums when uh, Netanyahu wasn't popular (laughs) in those places, representing a side of Israel that was more acceptable in Western capitals or regional capitals at the time. I want to change tack, though, with you now. Yeah. Because uh, I want to allude to an initiative with which I expect you would find some favour. Now, let me just play this audio clip of a news report from uh, I-24 News. The trial period for the new U.S.-Israel visa waiver program began today. When fully implemented, a visa waiver program would give all Israeli citizens the ability to enter the United States without a visa. More from ILTV's Steve Leibovich. The month-long U.S. waiver trial hinges on Israel offering unfettered passage to U.S. citizens of Palestinian origin entering Israel. 
I will say that we do expect that later today Israel will announce changes to their policies uh, to ensure equal treatment for all U.S. citizen travelers without regard to national origin, religion, or ethnicity. Our understanding is that this policy will apply to U.S. citizens, including Palestinian Americans on the Palestinian Population Registry. Until now, the issue was stalled due to restrictions on entry to Israel for Palestinian Americans to Judea and Samaria. The month-long pilot will test its preparedness for allowing Palestinian Americans to more freely travel into Israel. That will begin a process in which we will monitor not just their implementation of these policies, but their compliance with these policies and compliance with other, uh, other facets of the visa waiver program. And by September 30th, uh, the U.S. government will make a decision on whether they merit admission into the program. Israel has long sought access to the visa waiver program, which would mean its citizens would not need to secure a visa before travel to the United States. What we've just heard, there is to be a trial whereby uh, Palestinian Americans from the West Bank would be able to fly in and out of Israel's Ben-Gurion International Airport near Tel Aviv. And previously, they would generally fly to neighboring Jordan, cross into the West Bank by land and face restrictions if seeking to enter Israel. So what will this initial trial for a waiver program mean in practical terms? This is an important thing. In some ways, a, a reversion to a pre-Second Intifada mode of operation. Before the Second Intifada, Palestinians from the West Bank uh, and certainly Palestinian Americans would travel through Ben-Gurion. I wouldn't say that it was simple, having accompanied many delegations of Palestinians uh, and, and Israelis on, on their ways to programs in the United States in my younger years. The Palestinians were often subject to onerous searches. It was often unpleasant. They were certainly went through a different procedure than everyone else. And I think many Palestinian Americans going back and forth, visiting family in the West Bank or in Jerusalem, have been subjected to uh, those kinds of uh, of searches. It was a difficult experience, to say, to say the least. Obviously, at the same time, there are very serious security concerns for aviation in general, and certainly in Israel, all the more so. I am not an expert in that kind of security, so I do very much want to defer to experts in, in security. I, I don't want my safety or anyone else's safety compromised the challenge is to find the right medium so that most travelers who are obviously not security threats and are not seeking to do any harm to anyone are able to travel without undue harassment while maintaining security and vigilance against the very real threats that exist. All that said, there have been some improvements in technology that I think make it possible to scan baggage uh, and people to some degree with less intrusive and onerous methods uh, than existed uh, in during the previous period, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. If this program is able to actually work, then I think that's an enormous uh, and important uh, step forward. The reason it's happening, obviously, is there's a very strong incentive for Israelis to uh, be able to travel without a visa to and from the United States. If it will work out, then it can really be a win-win. Personally, having many Palestinian American friends who travel back and forth, I would be thrilled if they are uh, able to do so uh, securely and without facing the kinds of onerous searches that they have in the, in the past. I think that the trial program, that's the goal, is to see whether it works and whether the Israelis are, are, are 
committed to do to doing so in a manner that maintains the absolutely necessary security requirements and vigilance, but uh, with maybe more of more attention towards not catching so many fish in in the net who aren't what you're looking for. Yeah, I think the only sticking point potentially is uh, with um, Gazan Americans, that is, uh, who are are actually resident within Gaza, because Israel is ostensibly... uh, in uh, in a war footing with uh, with with Gaza, so it would be very difficult to give them yes. uh, free reign in to travel into Israel in the current uh, circumstances where it, we it, see it, this enmity between Gaza and uh, and Israel. Situation of the Gaza Strip is tragedy, an ongoing tragedy, and is a uh, is probably the worst currently the worst front of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And uh, I also, I do have uh, friends in in Gaza and Palestinian Americans whose families are there. I feel saddened that they are left out of this, though I hope that perhaps if it succeeds, it could be a trial run that can be widened in the future. But when that future is, when Gaza is not run by Hamas, which is uh, designated as a terrorist organization, and I would agree wholeheartedly with that designation. How that's going to come about, I, I certainly don't have a crystal ball to tell you. Now, in the little time we have left, Ned, I don't think we can overlook what's been going on in Israel as we're speaking. Uh, only a, a couple of days ago, Israel passed into law the first of its judicial reform measures. And after 29 weeks of protests and mass public opposition that have roiled the country and divided its citizens, the Knesset gave its final approval to the first law that prevents the courts from reviewing the reasonableness of government and ministerial decisions. First major bill of the government's judicial overhaul that's been passed into law. What do you uh, have to say about this? It was certainly an extremely dramatic uh, moment. And I would say that uh, as much of the rhetoric afterwards, you know, that was one one battle, but the war is uh, is ongoing over this uh, massive judicial reform. Uh, a couple of things that I'd note, uh, you know, I would say that the mobilization of uh, Israeli citizens uh, over this issue is something remarkable to behold. When I try to think about the numbers of people who have been demonstrating on a regular basis and are completely keyed into these issues, even to this, you know, this law, which is sort of seems like a, a more minor component of the larger judi- judicial reform. And, and, and uh, you know, to see hundreds of thousands of Israelis demonstrating over, over this, it's a remarkable thing. It would be millions of people in the United States, of course. We can talk about the policy outcomes and uh, the effect on, you know, what will be the future and what, what you know, how does this affect the government? It's, it's unclear because the mobilization, uh, the protest movement is so I- extensive. That's quite remarkable. I, w- I would even say that a- any country could draw some hope from having such a large portion of its citizens engaged politically, engaged civically, in terms of what the immediate impact will be. I certainly say it's a momentary victory for the coalition that they managed to hold all their votes together. They didn't know no one voted against, including those such as the defense minister who have voiced some reservations. So that's a short term 
victory. And it's also important for them to point out to their voters, we're effective, we are, we are getting this done, or we're getting part of this done, despite all of the opposition, we're not surrendering. But in the longer term, the fact that there was no moderation of the law, the fact that it was passed in this pretty extreme form that the current justice minister, Yariv Levine, demanded really severely limits uh, uh, the courts, or I mean, it's, it's in essence denies the court's ability to uh, use this judicial criteria to review laws. When there were a number of compromise proposals that were presented, the fact that it, that it passed in the sort of original extreme form uh, may not bode well uh, for the longer term for the current coalition. But Israeli, it's really impossible to predict. Israeli politics have been impossible to predict for the last four years and will continue to be so. They're, they're very interesting. We'll see what the longer term outcome will be. Netanyahu's government in mock election polls or polls, you know, who would you vote for today, has lost tremendous popularity. It's lost 10 or 11 seats in the Knesset and fallen to a, a minority in polls. However, those polls probably make a, a new election less likely in the sense that the current coalition parties can see that they really stand to lose if they allow this government to collapse and another election to happen. Yes. Now, one aspect of the, what has been going on has been the, uh, the US uh, taking a very close uh, watch on proceedings. We uh, saw US President Biden send his fifth message in a little over a week calling on the government to not rush these constitutional changes, uh, Israel really hasn't uh, rushed them in a sense that it's, it's been over six months that uh, since they were first mooted. So what do you have to say about the US and its uh, concerns over these reforms? Is the US uh, right to be focusing so strongly on what is happening in this arena? You're correct that the US has made quite a number of official statements on this. And in the New York Times, Thomas Friedman has also published excerpts from his meeting with uh, President Biden. So in all of them, the US is sending uh, a clear message. That message has been repeated by European governments as well, which is a message of concern. I think that we can see in that that uh, there's a clear uh, connection between the leadership in those countries and much of the leadership of the Israeli opposition and the protest movement. The concerns that are being voiced diplomatically by the United States are being voiced much more forcefully by people like Ehud Barak, former prime minister of Israel, uh, Nadav Argaman, the recently retired former head of the Shin Bet, Dan Khalutz, who was the chief of staff uh, of the IDF after being the uh, chief of the Air Force. So these are all people who are uh, obviously well known uh, in these Western capitals when they are speaking, uh, and many of them are speaking, and many people who I'm not naming, making much harsher statements about the content of these laws and what it would indicate for the future uh, of Israel as a democracy. It'd be remarkable if we didn't hear any messages particularly from a democratic uh, administration in the United States. I'm not surprised to hear those. I don't think it's out of place. 
Uh, I know that you know countries always like to say you're you know you're intervening in our internal affairs, etc. Uh, but making a comment is not intervening uh, in a uh, undue manner. The United States, which of course, as we previously discussed, is a tremendously important ally of Israel, uh, supplies Israel with billions of dollars of military aid uh, and and support in international forums. Obviously, the United States, I would say, uh, has, a, has a right to express an opinion uh, on fundamental changes to uh, uh, Israel's constitutional uh, structure uh, and status as, as a liberal democracy with independent, independent judiciary and protection of uh, minority rights, uh, etc. A, a more forceful intervention, a change in policy, a change in something like that would, of course, be a, that would be a severe or a serious move that would uh, warrant consternation and concern. At the moment, what the U.S. is doing has also done nothing to dissuade uh, the current coalition from what it's trying to enact. I'm sure there are many people in Israel who would like the U.S. to do more. Well, that's a good point, I think, to finish up. Uh, of course, uh, we've got uh, more of this judicial reform stuff happening, so uh, this subject yes, we uh, do. won't go away uh, too soon. Lots to look forward to. <laughs> I've been speaking with Professor Ned Lazarus, considering the impact of President Isaac Herzog's rapturous reception by the U.S. Congress and the moves afoot for the U.S. to introduce a visa waiver for Israelis with a quid pro quo for Palestinian Americans to come directly into Israel. My next guest is Yotam Politzer, the CEO of Israel a humanitarian aid NGO based in Israel that partners with local communities around the world to provide urgent aid, assist in recovery and reduce the risk of future disasters. Founded in 2001, their volunteer teams have worked in emergency and long-term development settings in more than 60 countries around the world. I welcome you, Yotam Pollitzer, to the Israel Connection on JA Community Radio in Melbourne, Australia. Hi, great to be here. I want to know a little bit about yourself, Yotam. You're the uh, CEO of Aid, and you oversee the organization's global operations, strategy and partnerships, a big role indeed. But you also received the prestigious 2023 Charles Bronfman Prize, an annual award presented to a humanitarian whose work informed by Jewish values has significantly impacted the world. And I believe the prize amounts to about $100,000 and uh, you're going to give a large portion of it back to your organisation. I feel very humbled talking to you. Give us an idea of how you came into being such a selfless person involved in helping other people in the humanitarian way that you do. First of all, thank you, David. And next time, remind me to invite my mother to the interview <laughs> after such a humbling opening. Listen, I, I grew up in Israel in a small moshav in the north part of Israel. My dad is a social worker. My mom was a school counselor. I never thought that I'll get involved in this kind of work. It wasn't any part of a, a big strategic plan of what I'll do with my life. But definitely I was inspired by my parents. My, my, my father, for example, worked for many years with Ethiopian Jews and people with disabilities. And then when I was 18, I did what we call in Hebrew, which translates to service year, um, which is a very weird thing. It's, it's this phenomenon of about 10,000 Israelis who every year decide to uh, postpone their military service uh, in another year. 
and do another year of service, volunteering. And I did my gap year, my volunteering year uh, in, um, in a special boarding school for, for kids who are suffering from um, domestic violence, etc. Many of them were actually Ethiopian Jews. And I think that was the first time that I developed this passion to not only do this kind of work of service, but also to work with people from different backgrounds, with different cultures. And I call what I do, I call this uh, concept active anthropology. I'm fascinated by other cultures. I'm fascinated by people who are different than me, and I want to learn from them. And I want to do it by not just by reading or researching, but by actually working with real people. And, and it was an amazing year and really, really changed my life. Uh, and then even in my IDF service, I was partly a combatant, but partly I did a project with Bedouins who live in, in the Negev in the south part of Israel in challenging situation. But I, I worked a lot with them on education. And then the IDF chief of staff decided to kind of adopt this project and gave me also a big, big award in the IDF. That was already 20 years ago. Uh, and then after my army service, uh, I, I was kind of following the what we call the hummus trail. I went to India and, you know, it's called the hummus trail because the Indians are making hummus for the Israelis. It's not the best hummus I ate, to be very honest. Uh, you know, it was uh, <laughs> a little bit spicy. But nevertheless, I found myself in uh, Nepal, checking in the Himalayas. And then I, I started to volunteer with street children there for another great organization called Tevel Betzedek, uh, which brought young Jews from all over the world to volunteer in Nepal. And again, I was supposed to do it for two weeks. I ended up staying there for three and a half years. And really one thing led to another. And when, then when I finally got back to Israel and wanted to start my life, that was March 2011. And, and two weeks later, the tsunami in Fukushima uh, happened. And then I was invited to, to lead a mission on behalf of Israel. Israel was a tiny organization back then. That's how my, my humanitarian career like officially started. And since then, I led many humanitarian missions before stepping into this role. But really, for me, it goes down to a combination of A, kind of my interest in people and culture, B, my passion for service, and C, my wish to do it on behalf of Israel or with relation to Israel, especially now. And we're talking on a special day in Israel, which I'm sure I don't need to give you the context, but yes. especially now when things are very politicized and divisive, and I'm not even getting into the actual decision that was made. I think it's more important than ever to remember what unites us, what brings us together, our, our deep values, and what, you know, what this country essentially was built upon. Israel, we see it as really the, the real values of, of Israel, and, and also, of course, we are inspired by Jewish values. It's like getting back to first principles, you might say, uh, not, uh, not getting caught up in all the uh, hoo-ha that uh, is, is, is happening that Colors and muddies the waters. But anyway, right. as we said, we're not going to get into all that stuff. Uh, now, I want you to give me no, an I, idea. I don't mind. You can get into whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but, I, what I, but what I'm saying is that I think we also have a role to play. So the mission of Israel is to support people affected by humanitarian crisis. Um, you're partnering with local communities around the world to provide urgent aid, assist in recovery, and reduce the risk of future disasters. Do you want to give us right. uh, some examples of how you go about achieving this idealistic mission? Yes. Whenever there's a crisis in the world, and it could be places nearby, like the recent earthquake in Turkey or the war in Ukraine, 
or the other side of the world, which is more next to your neighborhood in Vanuatu, whenever there is a crisis, and again, it could be a man-made disaster like Ukraine, a massive earthquake, or a cyclone in Vanuatu, or a tsunami in Japan, our emergency response team will be there typically within the first 72 hours and provide immediate relief. And immediate relief could mean access to clean water, medical support, relief supplies, tents. In rare cases, for example, in Nepal, after the earthquake, we actually did search and rescue and we were able to pull the last survivor of the earthquake, who's a woman who survived for six days without food or water. And also psychological first aid, which we believe is as essential as food and water based on our experience in Israel. So that's kind of the first thing, the, the actual saving lives, the actual direct relief. But more important, and I'll, and I'll explain why it's more important, we, from the get-go, we, we build partnership and we identify local community partners and community members that we can work with, that we can strengthen their capacity, because unfortunately what happens in this situation is that Whenever there's a crisis somewhere in the world, the whole world is there. Everyone sends their grandmother's socks. Everyone wants to help with a lot of good intention. But unfortunately, it's very limited and it's not sustainable. It's usually for a week, two weeks, and then people move on to the next tweet. For Israel, sorry, it's not only important to, to be there um, first on the ground, it's also important to stay when many other leaves. And it's important to stay, A, not so we, so we don't abandon these communities, but even more importantly, we want to train and we want to, as I said, strengthen capacity so they can eventually support themselves. And that kind of leads me to the third goal. And wh why is it so important that the communities, yes, we know it's a very important in Jewish values to give people a job to make sure that they're not dependent on aid. That's the obvious. But it's even more important because in most of the countries we work at, there are unfortunately disasters happening on an annual basis, especially with climate change. And of, and of course, with, with political crises like Ukraine and, and elsewhere. So it's even more important to stay and to help the community build back better and achieve what we call post-traumatic growth. So they can actually be more resilient for future disasters. And we've seen it time and time again. And just one example is in, in Vanuatu, where they really... Almost every year, there, there's a major cyclone there. We came after Cyclone Pam in 2015, so eight years ago. And we've been there ever since. We built a very strong local team that is now able to respond to disasters locally and potentially regionally as we look to expand our work in the Pacific, which is... And also, Vanuatu is considered one of the most vulnerable countries for climate change in the world. Some of the islands there are, are literally sinking. So this is why it's so important to build this local capacity and to um, and to stay when everyone leaves. I want to go back to an interview uh, that I did uh, a few years ago on my my show. Uh, I've been on the air for eight years, uh, if you if you don't know, but so this has been uh, a labour of love for me for uh, quite a long time. And I spoke with Gil Haskell who is yeah, the head of Mashab, Israel's Agency for International Development Cooperation. And I asked yeah. him to distinguish between the operational models of Mashab and Israel Aid. And I'm going to play that little uh, one-and-a-half-minute clip now. And perhaps uh, after I finish, you can just tell me how you distinguish 
or how you perhaps sure. work together uh, or cooperate with an organization like Mashav. I know that uh, there's another organization around uh, which is called Isra Aid. Can you mm-hmm. perhaps distinguish for us what is the difference between the operational sphere of Mashav and Isra Aid? Yeah, yeah, there, there's a huge difference. Israel Aid is, is basically an Israeli NGO, although it's called Israel Aid, but, but it's, it's, it's a non, totally non-governmental organization of, of uh, great people uh, with great vision that volunteer ultimately and find themselves uh, going to uh, almost every corner on the globe where, the, where uh, disaster uh, strikes. But they're not alone. There's quite a, a wide range of Israeli NGOs and a growing number of Israeli NGOs that are involved in international humanitarian assistance and international assistance in general. And Mashav is, is a fully, a full-fledged government agency owned by the government, funded by solely by the Israeli government and operated within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So there's a very clear distinction between Mashav and organizations like, uh, like Israel. But we, we do cooperate with, with these uh, um, different organizations, and we cooperate specifically also with, with Israel. One example is, is a, an ongoing operation that we have as we speak in uh, Fiji that was struck by uh, Cyclone uh, Winston. But we, we cooperate with them in, in, in other areas as well, as we do with other Israeli uh, NGOs or, or international organizations. What do you mm-hmm. have to say about Mashab and how you uh, work uh, together with each other. How do you see yourself aligned alongside them? First of all, Gil is a really great guy and, and we go a long way back. Unfortunately, he's no longer in Mashab, but we're, we're still pretty close. Mashab is the official agency for Israel for development and aid. And we collaborate on many different ways. Most recently, actually, we had a big collaboration in Ukraine where with their support, we brought water desalination system to the city of Mykolaiv that was completely bombed uh, by the Russians and uh, the water system and infrastructure is destroyed. Together with Mashab, we brought water engineers and water systems that are now providing thousands of people with access to clean water. So that's at a very late stage. But in every crisis, for instance, in Turkey, after the earthquake, or, or even now, actually last week, uh, with the help of Mashav and with in partnership with another great organization that I'm sure you're familiar with, Save a Child Heart. We have been working for many years since their independence in South Sudan, which is one of the most challenging places on earth. And we identified and screened with the help of Mashav, the local ambassador for Israel, and of course, Save a Child Heart. We identified a few children that will be now sent to Israel for a life-saving surgery at Save a Child Heart facility. So that was also a, a great opportunity. So, so we do collaborate on, on many occasions, and I think we complement their efforts because, A, we are on the ground, we have a team on the ground that they don't have, and also we stay for long term, and they're looking for these kind of partners. We also, in some cases, one of Mashav is best at is bringing people from the global south to trainings in Israel. And that's a big part of their work. One of the challenges that they're facing is that a lot of these people are getting training in Israel, they're getting this incredible experience and skills, but it's hard to do the follow-up. So we have sent quite a few of our local staff and partners to training with Mashav, and that was amazing for us because they came back to their own countries 
I'm leading our teams and projects with so much more know-how and expertise, and of course, with a strong connection to Israel. So that's how we collaborate, and I really hope that we will increase this collaboration. Obviously, budget is always an issue when it comes to the government, but I am optimistic that we'll see more projects coming up soon, including in places like Vanuatu uh, and the Pacific. So you've mentioned places that are close to home here in Australia, and uh, you caught my attention when I came across an article that was in the Australian Jewish News, which reported about a meeting you had in Sydney last month, when it was revealed that your NGO, Israel Aid, sees a lot of opportunities in Australia, and you had consequently decided to open an office in Australia. Tell me, why, why Australia, Yotam? Is Australia just a place where perhaps you can see people would be willing to support an organisation like yours? So it's a combination. First of all, what we are hearing from the Australian community, both the Jewish and the non-Jewish community, is that actually there are a lot of needs, uh, both in Australia and in the region, when it comes to climate-related disasters. Definitely in the Pacific region, in Southeast Asia, these are two of kind of the most vulnerable regions for for climate change and for climate-related disasters. They have typhoons and cyclones every year. So there's a very strong regional needs and opportunities, and it makes a lot of sense to be based out of Australia and to bring support from Australia and from Israel to these places. Vanuatu is uh, the one I mentioned, but we also have a, a project in the Philippines, and we believe that we will expand uh, in the Pacific to additional locations and provide more support once we have a strong base in Australia. The other reason, yes, is to bring support for our work around the world. And by the way, support is not only from the Jewish community, which, as you know better than me, is an incredible community who are deeply connected to everything that we represent, to to human rights, to humanitarian aid, to refugees. And, And of course, they are such an amazing community when it comes to the connection with Israel. But uh, the opportunities that we see is way beyond the Jewish community. We already are, for Vanuatu, uh, partnering with DFAT, who actually support us quite substantially in Vanuatu. And we believe there's an opportunity to leverage on that and to strengthen this partnership uh, with DFAT, but also with a lot of non-Jewish foundations and and companies, etc., One of the other reasons that from a value perspective, Australia um, is very interesting for us is because of all the work that's already being done with the First Nations here. One of the organizations that we will, we are already partnering with, but I believe we will have a much stronger partnership is Stand Up, formerly Jewish Aid Australia, and and they, they really share our values and we believe we could really learn from each other's work. So I also see a lot of opportunities for, for joint learning and exchange and of best practices. It's not going to be a big office. We're not uh, planning to have uh, 200 people in the office, probably have someone in Sydney and maybe someone in Melbourne and small board. And it will be mostly to build partnership in the region and to bring more support. Yeah, well, I look forward to uh, what you're going to do here in Australia. It can only be good for uh, for all of us, uh, what you uh, potentially could achieve. With um... uh, the other thing, the other thing I wanted to mention in this regard, actually, is that I've also visited in the last trip uh, many of the of the schools. I went to Mount Scopus, I went to Bialik, I went yes. to uh, Moriah in Sydney, and there was so much excitement from the younger generation about Israel, 
people were really, really excited to get involved. We can't bring high school students, unfortunately, to disaster areas. We do take college students as interns occasionally, and I believe we will have interns in Australia. But also, again, going back to the building bridges, we definitely want both people in the Jewish community and the non-Jewish community to know not only about the great work that our teams are doing around the world, but about the needs that these communities are suffering from. So we really see ourselves as ambassadors for these communities. The excitement of the younger generation in Australia was very inspiring and very, very interesting for us. So some of the work of the office will be to raise awareness, kind of doing all these educational activities on behalf of, of these communities around the world. Good to hear. When the new humanitarian crisis emerges, Yotam, on the world stage, and of course, there's, unfortunately, we know that that happens very frequently, uh, you're one of the first organisations to appear on the scene. Now, are you always welcomed with open arms or do you face some resistance or opposition being an Israeli-based organisation? Thank you. No, so there's um, there are different scenarios, right? First of all, in some countries... Well, I will, first of all, I would say that in most countries, we're very welcome, uh, the big majority of the countries. Some countries who actually have great diplomatic relation with Israel, their government wants to be in control because, you know, that's what governments do. They are not so open for international humanitarian aid. Um, and in these cases, uh, which we had in the past in, in a number of countries, We've collaborated with local NGOs and we were able to operate that way because these local NGOs really wanted the support and we worked through them so we can, we can achieve that. In other countries like Turkey, for example, the government took a very centralized approach. They actually didn't have any issue with us being Israeli, quite the opposite. Even Erdogan, who has a long history with, with Israel, he kind of mentioned two countries that supported Turkey, although there were more than 70 countries there. Israel and Azerbaijan. The Turks were actually very open to Israeli support and we had great and positive response for them, but it all had to go through the government. We had to work through the government. There have been cases in the past where we worked in countries that don't have diplomatic relations with Israel. In these cases, of course, we have to be very careful for security purposes and we couldn't wear the t-shirts or put our logo out there. Now, the local parties that we had, they're all new and they actually invited us and wanted to work with us. But the government, obviously, we couldn't collaborate with because of the lack of diplomatic relations. And then there are other cases where we worked with people from countries that don't have diplomatic relations, but only when they were out, like the situation in Syria, uh, where we worked with hundreds of thousands uh, of Syrian refugees who uh, left Syria to Jordan and then Turkey and then to Greece, uh, which we had a, a huge operation. We directly support about 120,000 Syrians over six years, since 2015 uh, to 2021. We never had, and I, we never had any um, negative response from the Syrians. Some of them were surprised, so I call it positively shocked. Um, they were not expecting to receive support from a, an Israeli organization, and we always joke that they probably think they took the wrong boat. But actually, we received lovely responses. And there's a story that I always share about this Syrian guy that after we treated his daughter, he told me my worst enemy became my biggest supporter. Mm. Um, and that wasn't anecdotal. We, we've heard similar things from thousands of them. And, and again, never had uh, negative reactions. And by the way, I think there are 
And a number of reasons for that. A, they were fly, fleeing for their life. And they couldn't care less if we were from Israel or where we're from. Second, we had uh, we were there first on the ground and we were e really e able to provide uh, a lot of impactful kind of support. Third, we had quite a few Arab Israelis on our team who spoke their language. So that was a great uh, way to build trust and relationship. The other example that I have is obviously from Afghanistan, which uh, most recently we had a very dramatic operation that I led with two amazing women, Ronnie and Dana, and we were able to evacuate more than 200 Afghans, and, and they had no idea they're being evacuated by Israelis until they were out of the country. And then again, they were shocked, but we received amazing responses. And by the way, there, I also think the reason is that these people were fleeing extremism from in their own country whether it's Syria or Afghanistan. So their identity has already changed and, and that sort of contributed to the building bridges that I was mentioning. These are good stories uh, for us to hear. Now, as we're speaking, a uh, tragedy or disaster is unfolding in, uh, in the Mediterranean, in, in Rhodes and, and other islands. Is this a scenario where you will be potentially involved? It's a good question. We're, we're assessing the situation. In Generally speaking, we, we are not firefighters. Hmm. And there are great firefighters teams from Israel that went to help in Greece. Having said that, we have responded uh, in the past to fires uh, in places. We, we didn't go to the Australia. We almost responded to the bushfire. But we went to California um, yes. when they had massive fires. And there was a whole city called Paradise that was wiped out. And, and even in Canada, uh, in Fort McMurray. So when, when there are fires, the way for us to get involved is usually with the people who lost their homes and are traumatized. And many of them are in shelters and in needs. So we are assessing the situation in Greece to see if that, there will be a need there. And, and if there will be, we, 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 will, we are likely to respond. So far, we have not responded yet, and we're assessing the situation. Well, just to finish up, for people who are listening to you and, and feel passionate about what you do, there's a, of course, people can readily make donations by going to your uh, website, yeah. uh, israelaid.org. Is that right? Yeah, and also right now, as we are registering ourselves and we're not yet received our charitable status, we'll probably take another two months or so in Australia. Um, we are, as I said, partnering closely with Stand Up. So they can also go on the Stand Up website and there's a link and a page for, for the partnership they're doing with us. And I want to thank them for that. So that's the, So that's one way. But I do think the other thing to do for people from Australia who... who are interested in the activities that we will do in, in Australia is to really sign up and, and I'm happy to share uh, my email or our communication team and get all the updates because we'll have many events and opportunities to visit some of our projects in Vanuatu and Southeast Asia. We will take interns and we, we would love to, in the very beginning, in the first year at least, make sure that everyone knows about Israel. So I'm grateful for this interview. And we would love to do, again, more events in schools, in campuses, in, in private houses, in, in, in uh, community events. I am hoping to be back in Australia in late August, actually. And I'm in close contact also with AJF, with, um, with Tracy, that I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, Australian Jewish funders. 
and they have their event that I will be speaking at for young leaders from the community um, in late August. Anyway, there will be a lot of opportunities for interactions and, and to get involved. And I encourage all of you to kind of go on our website, sign in for our newsletters and get all the updates. And for those that are really keen, uh, is there an opportunity to uh, put their neck on the line and, uh, and, and volunteer to work with your organization? <laughs> Yeah, I, I want to be clear about volunteering because I think people have sometimes misconceptions and I see uh, wherever I go in the States, it's very common. People are telling me, oh, yes, we are free to volunteer for two hours in 2025, <laughs> um, which is great, again, but not the most helpful way to, to support. It is the most important thing for us to, to get uh, financial support so we can continue this work. People who want to volunteer, we usually take either long-term interns, so people, and, and by the way, interns doesn't mean that they have to be medical students. They could uh, study finance or communication because we need support on these fields as well. Yes. We do take professional skilled volunteers for specific things, and especially if these are people who can come more than once. Uh, and I understand it's hard for people to take off for more than a couple of weeks, but if they can take multiple times over the next few years, that's, that's relevant. We're looking for, again, people from very specific, different backgrounds. Medical is one of them, psychological, uh, water engineers, sometimes people with educational background, people who are interested and have some experience in humanitarian aid and international development. And I met quite a few of them in, in Australia are, are more than invited to join. We are recruiting people. We already have quite a few Aussies on our team. In fact, a person who runs all of our Global health work is Australian, a woman living in Israel. And by the way, you don't need to be Jewish to join Israel. That's a, an important clarification. Uh, out of our 350 uh, team members globally, the majority are non-Jewish. You don't have to convert either, I guess. No, it's not a requirement. <laughs> well, it's great chatting to you today, Yotam, and I look forward to um, you coming back to Australia and, and you bringing... Um, your great ideas and, and work uh, into the Australian arena and, and letting us see uh, what great benefit it does for all of mankind. Thanks for having me and look forward to staying in touch. Speaking on the eve of Tisha B'Av, the saddest day on the Hebrew calendar, until next week, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection.